So we are going to be in John chapter 14 today. John chapter 14. As many of you know, Pastor Tim Potter is away on sabbatical through last month and this month. Pastor Kent Hobie is away with the funeral that we just prayed for. Pastor Steve Sindelar is away with a number of the youth. They are doing a weekend uh, get-together down in Columbus area. And so uh, if you could keep them in prayer, they'll be coming back here shortly. I know some of your children are, are there as well. So uh, just keep them in your prayers. John chapter 14. <clears throat> so John 14, if you're looking at the text, my text has a big 1-4 by it, you know, right at the beginning of the chapter. And it's like this new section of thought. But, but really, if you look at the first sentence, it's actually continuing from what was going on. So when we read this section, I need you to be thinking about something that's already been going on. We're like jumping right in to the middle of Jesus' dialogue. Okay. And this evening... That, that, that we're jumping right into the middle of, it, it got off to a weird start for the disciples. Like a weird start. Jesus had asked Peter and John to make arrangements for the Passover dinner, and they did. And they there were sitting and eating, and then Jesus gets up, and he takes off his robe. And then he puts a towel around his waist. And then he starts walking from disciple to disciple, and, and he starts washing their feet. He starts doing things that, frankly, the house, like the lowest employee of the house would have done. He's doing that as their rabbi, as their Messiah. Not only did that happen, but then there were some things that Jesus said that were really troubling. Like, I'm going away, and you can't follow me now. That put the disciples into, you know, a tizzy. But they insisted, no, 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 we, we'll go with you. In fact, we'll lay down our lives to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus drops another verbal bomb. Mm, no, you won't. In fact, you're going to deny me. And Peter insists, no, 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 I'd lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, yeah, before the morning, you're going to deny me three times. The disciples were troubled. This was a weird and troubling night. And we jump right into the scenario at the beginning of verse four, or chapter 14 where Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Today's sermon... Today's message, God's word, is really going to be straightforward. In fact, this passage of scripture might be like an old friend for some of you. 
where we come, I've heard this at many a funeral. Um, you may have memorized this passage, in fact. I don't intend to be like the, you know, magician preacher, you know, pulling the, the hat, the rabbit out of the hat. Let's find some truth you've never seen before. That would be bad. Familiarity isn't a bad thing. But as we look at this passage, and as we look at it in its context, our message is not only simple, but it's certainly applicable for our time. And it is this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Ben alluded to this when he was describing the choir anthem. And he said this, you know, this, this piece, this, this, you know, casting our care on the Lord, this, this, this action is not something that comes naturally. And in fact, we even see that in the verbiage here, where when Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, I'm going to look at the grammar here just a little bit. This is what's called a present passive imperative. Okay, so bear with me for a moment. Present, it's happening right now. Passive in that you're allowing something as opposed to active. Like active would be, I threw the ball and hit you. Versus passive, I got hit by the ball. This is passive. Something is happening. But imperative, it's not a suggestion. It's an action and something that you should do. What Jesus is saying is, don't let something that is natural happen from the standpoint of do not let your heart be troubled because what would be natural would be have your heart be troubled. And in their circumstances, why? Well, we talked about it already. Two reasons. First of all, Jesus was leaving them. This situation was unimaginable for the disciples. Remember, these were the ones that had left everything to follow Jesus. Remember? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they leave their nets. They left their careers. Matthew, making some pretty good money as a tax collector. Simon, pretty, Simon, pretty active as a zealot in this kind of cultural, political activist group. They left all that to follow Jesus, and now Jesus was leaving them. This was unimaginable. No, 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 no. We left everything to follow you. And frankly, they had already testified their allegiance to him earlier in this book in John chapter 6. Remember when Jesus fed the thousands and then he spoke truth that convicted and divided even to where many left? And Jesus looks at them and says, are you going to leave also? And he says, where will we go? You have the words of life. They committed, they pledged their allegiance to him, but now he was saying he was leaving. What? Not only was he leaving, but Jesus had also predicted that they would fail him. His prediction of Peter's failure would have been a devastating blow to these men who had just claimed, I will lay down my life for you. No. In one day, the disciples, frankly, would be without the one they devoted their lives to, and they'd also be dealing with the guilt and the shame of failing the one that they had just pledged their lives to. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why not? Well, today in this passage, we're going to see four reasons why not. It's something that could happen quite naturally. Just let it happen. Why not? Reason number one. Because 
Jesus can be trusted. Reason number one, Jesus can be trusted. Okay, and we see that in verse one. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. And depending on the translation and the grammar here, this can be interpreted one of several ways, but regardless where you might land, if you like to dig into the grammar, one thing is certain. Both God and Jesus were equally to be trusted. They were equally reliable. And when Jesus says, you believe in God, he's talking to the disciples who have a context of the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who had delivered his nation from captivity, the God who keeps his promises. You believe him? Believe in Jesus. Believe in the one that was already down the road of what was about to happen. The one that was already mentally, remember, he's here preparing them. This time in the upper room, the celebration of the Passover, this is a time of Jesus preparing his disciples for life without him and what was about to happen. In Jesus' mind, he's already down the road. He's down the road beyond their failure. He's down the road beyond even the crucifixion, beyond the resurrection, beyond his ascension. He's down the road looking in this passage even beyond their lives, beyond yours and my life, to a time where there would be a great reunion. You see, Jesus looked past these things when they would live together and never leave each other again. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted. You know, in a sense, from a spiritual standpoint, when you put yourselves in the shoes or sandals of the disciples, all that they would have been wrestling with, Jesus' absence, he's no longer there, but then their own failure. And then their own failure in light of the context of them like saying they weren't going to fail. This may sound vaguely familiar to your Christian life. It sure sounds familiar to mine. I can think of many a time where there was a, a, a strong pledge to the Lord. Lord God, I will never. Or Lord God, I'm going to. And, and it could be at a camp, it could be at a regular church service, it could be whatever. I mean, just this high emotional, like, pledge to the Lord. God, I'm going to. And then you fill in the blank only like three to four weeks later to be like tanking or to fail. And we have a God that doesn't live on the highs of our highs and the lows of our lows. We have a God, we have a Savior that is well beyond not just the enthusiasm of that decision, but maybe even the failure afterwards. We weren't there, but he was. And that's why as we see Jesus saying, believe in God, believe also in me, nothing catches him off guard. And this is really so much of a blessing when we consider what it is that Jesus is doing throughout all of John chapter 13 through 17. Remember, John 13, he says, you are already clean. 
Think of it this way. Even though the disciples were going to fail miserably, even though they were going to be prone to having their heart be troubled, in Christ, in Christ, they were never more pleasing to him than they already were. That's the same for you if you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are never going to be more pleasing to God than you are right now. Because you are in him. Meaning this, when Jesus died for your sins, and he saved you, he saved you from everything, past, present, future. When Christ died, every one of your sins was future. There will never be a point in time in your life, Christian, when God will see your daily activity and say, wow, I'm really happy with you now, or see your daily activity and say, mm, I'm really angry with you now. No. This is a God who knows all of you and knew all of these disciples. And so when he's calling on them to believe in him, he's calling on someone, he's calling them to believe in someone who knows everything about them. He can be trusted, just like the God of the Old Testament. God doesn't ride these highs and lows. No, he can be trusted. Do not let your heart, to be, do not let your heart be troubled because Jesus can be trusted. Number one. Number two. Don't let your heart be troubled because Jesus is preparing a new and wonderful and permanent home for you. Don't let your heart be troubled because Jesus is preparing a new and permanent and wonderful home for you. Say, why all those words? Well, I think we can get these words out of this text. Okay? Jesus is preparing a new and wonderful and permanent home for you. He's preparing. In other words, in verse 2, when he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. This word prepare is basically getting something ready. You're some, someone's coming over to your place, and you're getting it ready for them to come. That's the sense of this word. This could be physical preparations. Like, for example, Peter and John made preparations for the Passover. This could be spiritual preparations. John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Lord back in John 1, right? He wasn't actually building homes or, like, making rooms or anything. He was preparing. There's a spiritual level of preparation. Jesus is saying, I'm preparing a place for you. And what about this place? Well, it says, first of all, he is going to prepare a place. This place is new, meaning it wasn't where they currently were. It was going to be a place that he was going to take them to. It was new. I'd encourage you, if you write in your Bibles or you take notes, I'd encourage you, beside John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, to write Revelations 21 and 22. Kind of the end of the story. Okay? What, what, what's going to be happening? Okay. This place is new. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus says, Look, I am making all things new. And this place is being prepared. It's going to be new for them. It's going to be new for you and I who are in Christ. Not only will it be new, it will be wonderful. Why will it be wonderful? It's wonderful because of how Jesus describes it. He says, this is my Father's house. This is where God dwells. And what do we know about where God dwells? Well, where God dwells, Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, in your presence 
is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a wonderful, wonderful place. Far, far different from where you are currently, disciples. I'm preparing a place for you. And not only is it new and wonderful, it's permanent. Because this is my father's house. There's a level of permanence. I'm preparing a place for you. Many dwelling places. Now, this word dwelling place there, depending on your translation, might be mansions. And I know, like, historically, it's translated as mansions. We have songs, you know, I've got a mansion. You know, and, and we think about mansions. Really, it may or may not necessarily be mansions. It's just like dwelling places where you live. But there's a state of permanence. Whatever it is, that's going to be with God, it's going to be permanent. And since God is making it, it's going to be really good. And it's going to be permanently good. And not only is it going to be permanently good, and not only is it going to be new, and not only is it going to be wonderful, it's going to be a lot. And I say a lot because when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, that you is like you all. It's plural. So he's not just talking to one. And when you are blessed by reading this as a Christian, you say, God is preparing a place for me. Guess what? That's true also of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's true also of those spiritual siblings, that spiritual family that is also growing in their faith, that is also wrestling with perhaps their own spiritual troubles. This was a place of permanent residence. Where they were was not permanent. And this place is for all of us. As we love one another, we must not forget that Jesus is talking to others in addition to us. Do not let your hearts be troubled because trustworthy Jesus has a new and wonderful permanent place that he's preparing for you. Okay? So number one, number two. Number one, Jesus is trustworthy. Number two, He's preparing a new and wonderful and permanent place for you. Reason number three, do not let your heart be troubled. Because this new and wonderful and permanent home is where Jesus is. And he wants us to be with him. Reason number three, this new and wonderful and permanent home is where Jesus is. And he wants us to be with him. Verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This will be by far the best part of heaven. By far the best part of heaven. Amen. That Jesus will be there. A number of you have written books by John Piper. He says this. The critical, critical, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all of the friends you ever had on earth and all of the food you ever liked and all of the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all of the natural beauties you ever saw and all of the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, disasters could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there. Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford, part of the Scottish Reformation, said this, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. 
And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And in verse 23, he says, to be with Christ is far better. Far better. And the amazing, the most amazing part of all of this is that Jesus knows about the disciples. He knows everything about them. He knows everything about you and me. And he wants us. He wants us. Keep your finger here. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. The trajectory of the Bible certainly points towards the cross, right? But as we look to the so what of the cross, if I can put it that way, we ultimately get to this, what we're about to read in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, that's the dwelling place of God, is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is the best part of heaven. That God will be among us and dwell with us. And the fact that he wants to be with us at all is nothing short of miraculous and certainly evidence of God's grace. If you knew everything about me, you wouldn't want to spend eternity with me. And yet, as Jesus sees these disciples as washing their feet, and as Jesus has his words preserved in Scripture through the Gospel of John, and as we read them, we, ha- we come to grips with the fact that Jesus wants us to be there with him. You know, when we think about heaven without Christ, one author described it as, it's kind of like having a honeymoon without your spouse. I'll take it a step further. Heaven without Christ is like a destination wedding without your spouse. You make all of these preparations. You have the exotic location picked out. You have the date. You have the setting. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's better than Etsy. It is like perfect. All of the details, they just work just great. And you're there and, and you're like on the coast and, and there's the water and there's everything and it's just beautiful and, and the person you're marrying isn't there. And you're okay with that. No, you're not okay with that. That's the most important part. Not all the pageantry. The person. The best part of heaven is who we're going to be with. It's who we're going to see. It's who, 1 John 3 says, we're going to be like. So, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because Jesus is trustworthy, and he wants to be with you in the new and wonderful and permanent place that he's preparing for you. So that's number three. Number four. Finally, Don't let your heart be troubled. 
because Jesus has clearly shown us the way how to get there. Do not let your heart be troubled because Jesus has clearly shown us the way how to get there. Verse 4, Jesus tells the disciples, we're back in John 14. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas, ever blunt Thomas, we don't know the way. And how do we get there? And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. Jesus did not want there to be any ambiguity among the disciples as to how they could go to the place he was preparing. Even in addressing Thomas's straightforward question, he was perfectly clear and the disciples were to understand. He was giving directions, saying, I am the way. Now, in a given week where you and I are and we interact with our community, the majority of people do not know the way to heaven. They aren't certain. They have good guesses, but by and large, if you were to say, how does a person get to heaven? There would not be, by and large, there may be some, but there would not be the certainty that Jesus wants the disciples to have. You know the way where I'm going. You don't know the way. I am the way. Jesus is making certain that the disciples understand it. And in our day and age, there's so much uncertainty. How do you get to heaven? There's wishful thinking. And I do see at times certainty, especially after the death of a loved one. There's, a, there's kind of a certainty when it says, we know, we know that they're looking down on us. And I want to take a moment here to address the implications of what Jesus is saying here in verse 6. But I want to address these from the standpoint of the context, not just from the standpoint of the theology all by itself. Okay. When we look at what Jesus says in verse 6, and we see the certainty, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. And we see the uncertainty in our community, in our society. When we do hear pushback against Jesus being the way, and we do have the pushback against no one comes to the Father except through me, that pushback often is grounded in how people assume God should act. Like, if God is good, then why else wouldn't we imagine our loved one looking down on us? They've passed away. And God is a God of love. And he is a God that cares. And so when that loved one passes away, well, of course they'd be in heaven. To say otherwise... That's just not in line with how we view God. And, and, and that, in and of itself, is a mistake because how we view God ultimately comes through truth. And Jesus is the truth. Here's what I mean. Truth can't be based on anything other than what it is. I, in that situation, if I can't fathom my loved one not in heaven... 
Why is that? I mean, even if they aren't a Christ follower, even if they didn't confess Jesus as Lord, even if they didn't live a life giving evidence of the Spirit's fruit, why would I assume that that person is in heaven given what Jesus has said here? Jesus is not able, Jesus is not letting us able to do this. He's not letting us be able to do this. He says, no one comes to the Father except through him. The way to eternal life in heaven is through Jesus alone, and there's no exceptions. But the intent here isn't for Jesus putting up a gate and saying no. In the context here, that's why we have to really be careful to look at the context and understand our theology. In the context here, Jesus is making this statement to make it unmistakably clear as to how to go, how to get there, how to be in the new and wonderful and permanent place that he's preparing. Jesus wasn't trying to make a gotcha moment for all who would choose other ways to eternal life. It's not as if Thomas says, we know the way, Jesus. It's by obeying the law and keeping all those good works, right? No, 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 Thomas. Thomas is saying, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. So maybe I can illustrate this. When I was in college, um, I had a, a, a post office box that had a, a lock on it. The combination was 1-14-49. Why my brain remembers that, I don't know. But I had the little knob, and you had to turn it, and it was 1-14-49, box 40821. I can't remember like people's names half the time, but I can remember my box number, and I can remember my combination. But I knew when I got mail, I went to that box, 1-14. And oh, by the way, it wasn't just like I could put in one. I had to like turn the knob a certain way. Right? I had to turn it a certain way and then one. I had to turn it another way and 14 and then another way, 49, and then the thing popped open. Okay? Now let's imagine that I've purchased you a gift, but it's delivered to me and it's in that box. And I say, I have something really awesome for you. It's being delivered to me. You got to get it. Okay? Here's the combination 12, 17, 25. You get to the box, you turn in the numbers. That doesn't work at all. Hey, what's up? Oh, you know, just try any number. Just, just keep trying. That's actually unkind of me to say, I have a gift for you that I want to give to you and to give you any way that you want in order to somehow get that gift. No, it's actually really in your best interest for me to say, the only combination to this lock is this. And the only way to turn the knob, you got a one left, two right, da, da, da. Now, at some level, that illustration can break down because obviously it's an illustration. But when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me, he is making it unmistakably and helpfully clear as to the way to God, the way to where he is preparing a place that is new and wonderful and permanent and with him. That's what he's doing. The issue with this, the problem with this, is when we as humans refuse that way. No, I think there's a better way. 
There must be other ways to God. I mean, it's like we all took a lot of different ways to get here. You know, I drove up Route 2, 306. Some of you may have taken Lakeshore, maybe Bellflower. Hey, we all got here, right? That's the way getting to God is. Maybe you've heard that. There's lots of ways of getting to God. We each have our own different way. But that's not what Jesus says. And let me take this a step further. If that's the case, there's just lots of different ways to God. Just pick your way. Then Jesus cannot be trustworthy. And he cannot be the truth that he says he is. Because he has clearly told the disciples that the only way to the Father and where he lives is through him. If you don't think that's true, if you don't think that he is the only way, then he can't be the truth. He defines himself as the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If there's multiple ways to God, he can't be the truth. He would be contradicting himself in the same sentence. It's not consistent to take Jesus at his word in verse 2 and not at his word in verse 6. Because we really like verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. We like that. That's, if I can put it this way, aesthetically pleasing. That makes me feel good. But if you can't take verse 6, why would you take verse 2? Either he's true or he's not. To know this comfort that Jesus provides is to take him at his word and to see him as who he says he is. It's not unfair or cruel to say that he's the only way to God when the way to God is only through him. Jesus is meeting the disciples in all of their uncertainty and all of their fear and their confusion, and he's giving them clarity. I am the way. You may want to believe that there are many ways to heaven or God, but there's one way, and it's through Christ. Remember, he's telling this to his disciples because he wants them to be with him. Why wouldn't he want to make the way perfectly clear to us? Why wouldn't he? So, do not let your heart be troubled. Of all the commands in the Bible, do not fear, do not let your heart be troubled is repeated more often than any other command. Now, it could be because it's the most important command, maybe, I'm not certain about that, but one thing I am pretty confident about is that this command is repeated so often because there's such a variety of human circumstances that can lead us all to the same outcome, fear. Like, there's a lot of things that can happen that can result in our hearts being troubled. And so the variety of life circumstances can lead us to the common outcome. And yet for the disciples, this next 24 hours for them in John 14, it would be a test for them not only to obey, but also for the rest of their lives. And so bear with me. Jesus says to the disciples, do not let your heart be troubled, even though I'm going away. Do not let your heart be troubled, disciples, even though you'll all abandon me in fear and in shame. Disciples, do not let your heart be troubled, even though your good friend and fellow disciple will turn out to be a traitor and take his own life. Do not let your heart be troubled, even though I will be crucified. 
Do not let your heart be troubled, even though following me may cost each one of you your life and may make your wives into widows and your children into orphans. Disciples, do not let your heart be troubled, even though that death will, your death will look much like mine in that you all, those 11, would be murdered for my name's sake, except for John, and they tried really hard. Do not let your heart be troubled, even though in 30 years Rome would be ravaged by a terrible fire, and you Christians will be blamed for it, resulting in widespread persecution, torture, and massacre of the Christians in your churches, maybe even the Christians underneath your roof. Do not let your heart be troubled. Even when this persecution would scatter you, forcing you to immigrant status in many cases, as you find safe place for your families. Do not let your heart be troubled, disciples, even though in 40 years the center of your heritage in Jewish history, Jerusalem and its temple, would be overrun and destroyed by Rome. Do not let your heart be troubled, because in spite of everything that was about to happen, none of that would change the fact that Jesus is trustworthy, that he really is preparing a new and wonderful and permanent place where he wants you to join him forever, and that he has made the way to this place unmistakably clear. Disciples, regardless what the present looks for you, your future in Christ is certain. So what about us? Do not let your heart be troubled, even when you are faced with uncertainty. Do not let your heart be troubled, even when your world gets rocked with unexpected news. Do not let your heart be troubled, even when others close to you fail spiritually. Do not let your heart be troubled, even though you have failed spiritually, and your spiritual life is often filled with shame. Or, perhaps like Paul, the things I don't want to do I find myself doing, and the things that I don't want to do, these are the things I do. Do not let your heart be troubled, even when Jesus' name seems something more like a blasphemy than it is something to be accepted. Do not let your heart be troubled, even when violence and unrest, local, national, global, seems to be only more and more common with no end in sight. Do not let your heart be troubled, even when election results are not what you prayed for, this year or next year. Do not let your heart be troubled, even if we have another pandemic and medical protocols. Do not let your heart be troubled, even if the people around you don't respond the way you'd like to the pandemic and those protocols. Do not let your heart be troubled even when your doctor appointment begins with the doctor, either him or her saying to you, so there's a problem. Do not let your heart be troubled even when your rent or mortgage go up again, you're barely making it as it is, and when your grocery bill doubles even when the people under your roof don't. <clears throat> Do not let your heart be troubled even when your body does not look the way that you think it should or does not behave or act in the way that it ought. Do not let your heart be troubled, even when you aren't appreciated for your efforts or perhaps they're overlooked or taken for granted. Do not let your heart be troubled, even when you quietly bear your burdens and you come here 
week after week to a place like this and see seemingly everybody else with their nice families, nice clothes, nice smiles. And it seems like everything is going much more better for them than for you. Christian, do any of these things change what Christ has promised his disciples or what he has promised us? That he can be trusted. That he is already down the road of what is happening in your life, already beyond those things and looking to when you and he will live together in him and you'll never leave. That he is preparing a new and wonderful and permanent place for you, a place that is not here, it's not touched by the impact of sin, and it's in the exact same place where God is. That he wants you to be with him in this place. Yes, even the you that you hope no one else knows or learns about, even that you, that's the you he died for and wants to spend eternity with. And that he has made the way to this place so clear and so simple. And it's him. Do not let your hearts be troubled. This will be the activity of perseverance for Christians until we see Jesus. And for those who do not know him. Isn't he someone that you would want to spend eternity with? everything that we just described about what he's doing and what he's offering? Isn't that rather than someone that's exclusive and unfair, someone that's gracious and direct, someone that is long-suffering, not willing for you to perish, but wanting you to come to repentance on his terms? He defeated your greatest enemy, death. And he's preparing a place for those who are in him. You can trade this life for that. You can have a really good time here-ish. Or you can take Jesus at his word. I pray that you would. I pray that you would. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This is a familiar passage. Like a, a, for, for those who have gone through difficulty, in, in many ways it's like a warm blanket. It brings us to truth. When our eyes are everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. Lord, it brings it back to what is true. Would each person here know this Jesus? And Lord, guard us as Christians from having our hearts be troubled. It's not to minimize the things that we mentioned, and certainly Christ wasn't minimizing what the disciples would go through. Those are real and terrible things. Yet, Lord, our future is far greater, far greater. And I pray each person here might have that as their certainty, as Christ would have it for them. Lord, would there be conversations even today Would there be texts even today about making this certain for those who don't know you? And God, give us courage as Christians to not let our hearts be troubled because it is so easy and so natural for them to be. Give us courage and give us courage that we might share the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ because he is that kind and good to make it that clear. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.